Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, January 14th, we are studying Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20. In Galatians 4, St. Paul gives us the theological meaning of Christmas. He says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. But what are the historical details? How did the birth of the Son of God actually take place? That's the account that St. Luke gives us in today's text. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Jeremiah Johnson. Pastor Johnson serves at Glory of Christ Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Minnesota. Pastor Johnson, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thanks. Always good to be here. So, Pastor Johnson, we have a very familiar text today. Some of us are going to hear it in the King James with the voice of Linus from from Charlie Brown's Christmas, I think. So as we approach a text like this, which is just so familiar, how do do we do that? I think it's sometimes a danger. We know it so well that maybe we miss some of the details. How how do we need to approach this text today? Yeah, no, I I think you're exactly right. I think every every honest pastor, anyway, has asked that very question. I think um, most lay people probably have, too, because— you know, it's not like we, we would never want to be without this text, but at the same time, uh, you know, kind of familiarity. Well, I guess it does breed contempt in this case, but uh, it at least uh, it, it breeds a certain kind of autopilot, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, it's there's a couple of ways to go about this to try to really hear it fresh and new. Um, but I think it all really comes down to just really closely reading and considering you know, picking up on the things that we often skip over and asking, especially asking really specific questions of the text. You know, why is this person mentioned? And why is that event, you know, recorded in that way? Why would Luke include this, you know, this detail or that detail? What, you know, who is Quirinius? And, uh, you know, and, and what does it really mean that he's being born, you know, put in a manger? And what about these shepherds and all these other things? Because it's, it's really, a, especially in Luke, it is a text that, puts the mundane and the supernatural and the extraordinary all together in, you know, in really kind of a shocking way that, that hopefully should jolt us from our kind of Christmas sentimentality, so to speak. Well, talk, talk more about the mundane aspect of this text. I mean, again, we know it so well, this is the birth of God, but, but you're calling right. it mundane. What, what do you mean? Well, I, what I mean is, um, and we haven't even, we haven't even started reading it yet. But I mean, as we'll, I'll go ahead and give you the the tip off, and and then as we read through the first seven verses, um, notice that there's really, in many ways, nothing unusual about it. I mean, in other words, what I mean is, this could be yes, we have a specific time of a specific place, right? I mean, it's during the reign of, uh, you know, Caesar Augustus, uh, when Quirinius was governor here, there's some historical details there, probably don't really need to get into too much. But, um, you know, but here's this nondescript, uh, you know, really unimpressive uh, Jewish couple from, from Palestine who's making this trip to, you know, go and get registered, pay their taxes, and they have a kid, right? And it, when you, the funny thing is, is that if you only had verses one through seven, 
you would have no indication, none, no indication whatsoever that this child is anybody special, that there's been any miraculous stuff that's gone on. I mean, without Luke chapter one and all the stuff preceding, the birth narrative itself, just verses one through six, is wholly unremarkable. It really is. But I think even though in that, as we'll, we'll get to talking about, there's a, there's a couple of hints, but I also think Luke's tendency to really focus on, you know, verifiable historical facts um, really help us to appreciate um, the fact that this is not some kind of fable. So, yeah, there's there's going to be plenty to talk about. You you mentioned if we didn't have Luke chapter one, what we're going to read in the first seven verses would seem pretty mundane, normal. What what is there in Luke chapter one that we do need to remember reading this these verses from Luke two? Yeah, the uh, you know it's probably helpful to remember to position where we are in uh, in history. So we have, of course, this is uh you know went out from Caesar Augustus and uh, and you know, almost everybody knows that name, but uh, you may not always remember the, the backdrop uh, to that. You know, during the, in the Roman Empire, um, you know, the Roman Empire has been around for at least, you know, 500 years or so. Um, but it's, it's really, I actually should call it, technically speaking, a republic. It transitions from a republic um, to an empire that is one that is ruled by an emperor. And that transition has largely happened kind of in the century, you know, in the first century B.C., most people know the uh, story of the, uh, uh, what is Octavius is the guy who becomes Caesar Augustus. And then, you know, there's Mark Antony and then there's Marcus Lepidus, I believe it is. And, um, you know, and it's really, it's the story, this tremendous story of, you know, uh, of civil war and infighting. I mean, these are, these are grand scale kinds of, uh, you know, uh, historical movements, you know, with, with, with intrigue and war and, uh, and all of these other things. Um, I mean, this is the kind of stuff that, that generally history really focuses upon. And at least what I'm going to argue, um, and we probably should get to actually reading the text because then I can make reference to it. But I think in many ways what Luke is laying out, I mean, he almost is, he's giving us some historical bearings, you know, that, that happened in this particular place in this particular time. But I think in many ways, Luke is rightfully sort of, almost dismissive, you might say, um, or at least diminutive of, you know, all this quote unquote, super important, you know, Roman history with all these powerful leaders and all that. Um, because he's going to show us that, you know, what's really going on, you know, what's really important isn't all these political movements with these big name guys. It's with this child who's in the major. Well, let's go ahead and read that text so you can reference it, Pastor Johnson. I'll, I'll read the first seven verses, which is the birth narrative. So Luke 2, beginning at verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. 
That is Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, the first part of our text today. So, Pastor Johnson, like you were saying, you know, if you don't have any of the other context, most of this reads pretty mundane, pretty normal. This could have been any couple giving birth to their first child. A few things that are maybe a little out of the ordinary, and there are some indications right. that you know something special is going on. It sounds like the city of David, the house and lineage of David, that's going to be an yeah. important indicator that something more is happening within this text itself. So take us right. into to some of those indicators. Yeah, no, just like you said, um, you know, so if you're a, you know, if you're a, a pagan reading this, I mean, you know, and you have no understanding of the history of, uh, you know, of the Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, this probably isn't going to mean much to you, you know, the house of city of David, uh, you know, because he was of the line of David, right? But for anybody who knows their Old Testament, this at least should perk up your ears. I mean, like I said before, you notice there's no claims of this, you know, it doesn't say anywhere, Luke doesn't say, and Mary gave birth to the Son of God, or, you know, he's the incarnate Christ. I mean, it's it's like the exact opposite of the prologue of John, right? That, that right. screams that, you know, it begins with, you know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and he eventually became flesh and all that good stuff. We don't have, you know, this is in so many ways the opposite. But like you said, um, for those who have ears to hear, so to speak, you know, he says, city of David. And, uh, you know, as we all know from Micah chapter 5, verse 2, uh, which is usually read, you know, during Advent, that this is, uh, uh, you know, that the, the city of David is where the Messiah is going to come from. And, of course, there's all the more potent uh, promises from Second Samuel 7, if you recall, that's where... Uh, where Samuel come, well, David has this idea, hey, I'm going to build a house for God. And then, um, you know, God speaks through Samuel and Samuel reports to David and says, well, God says, actually, you're not going to do that. You're not going to build him a house. He's going to build you, David, a house. And, uh, you know, and then he makes these, these tremendous promises. Like, uh, you know, you always have someone to sit on the throne of David, you know, and, you know, and your son is going to build a house for my name. And, uh, and all the, then it's going to start to see the, you know, then it says these weird things about how he's going to be punished with the stripes of men. And yet I'm going to still call him a father and he will call me a son and all this. And, um, which obviously Solomon was sort of the first fulfillment of that, but he doesn't really fulfill all of it. And, um, and so to anybody who knows their Old Testament, just this little, this little tidbit that he's from the line of David and he's being born in Bethlehem, the city of David itself, this has got to start kicking, you know, start kicking into your memory some of these promises like, wait a minute, is there, wait, could this be the guy? And, you know, I kind of always wondered, this is, you know, consider this pious conjecture or whatnot, but I've always wondered you know, how many, you know, young Jewish mothers, like ever since these promises were made in the Old Testament, always wondered when, as soon as they found out they were pregnant, like, am I going to give birth to the Messiah? Am I going to give birth to the Messiah? And well, Mary doesn't have to guess though. She's got the advantage of, uh, of the, uh, of the angel coming and telling her. So. Right. Right. Yeah. Mary does not have to guess. What, what about the, go a little more into the details that Luke begins this text with. We're in the days right. of Caesar Augustus. You've got Quirinius. You know, Luke, back at the beginning or toward the beginning of chapter one, after his introduction, he did say that we're in the days of Herod, king of Judea, which is a right. little, I mean, that's a much narrower focus. Here he's mm -hmm. broadening the scope. Caesar, right. By naming Caesar Augustus, you're talking about, I mean, I don't know my Roman history all that well, but this is one of the most well-known people in the world at the time, if not the most well-known right. in the oh, world. Oh, absolutely. 
Yeah, I mean, he is the A-list of A-listers, right? Um, you know, I, I will actually go back to your comment, though, about Herod, because I think this really sets up this contrast between that and the, and the kind of the, uh, the one-off comment about being of the house and lineage of David. I think this is really going to set up a dichotomy, uh, forcing us as the readers to ask, well, wait a minute, is this, he's from the line of David, right? The king comes from the line of David. So wait, so is Herod the king? Or is this little baby the king? And so, of course, we'll see that spelled out much more in the text to come. But I think already we have um, this um, that little hint dropped on us. But I, I think, you know, so if you'll bear with me for a minute, I think that Luke also has another great advantage um, you know, for us. There's something very edifying about the fact that he's, he's listed all these historical details, um, you know, because... Yes, Caesar Augustus, he's an important guy, but he's also, like you said, a, you know, a very locatable guy along with Quirinius. And you can go and look these people up. They have inscriptions about them. Um, you know, they are, they are well historically um, testifiable. Um, I think especially in a time, you know, during, during the Christmas season when, when there's so many, you know, when we, I think we cherish and love fables, right? You know, about, uh, remember I watched with my, with my kids, uh, Elf for the first time, um, not me for the first time, but them for the first time, uh, um, you know, back in, back in December. And, uh, and, you know, and it's, it's full of, you know, it's this weird mishmash of, you know, kind of like, you know, this fantasy land, you know, meeting, you know, what would apparently be, you know, 21st century America. But if you think about our Christmas celebrations, people are really attracted to these, um, you know, the, these fanciful stories and these fables. Um, you know, I mean, you know, uh, St. Nicholas got turned from a, an actual bishop of Myra into, you know, this gift-giving guy in a sleigh with, you know, with magical reindeer and all that. And, um, but I think this is really where we can clearly draw, a, you know, we, where Luke helps us understand a clear distinction. Because, one of the things about fables, and especially I, I specifically mean fables like almost in the sense of Aesop's fables, is that um, fables by nature are kind of generic. They have, you know, um, pick whichever one you want, like the, uh, what is it, the ant, the grasshopper, or Jack and the Beanstalk. There's always like some generalized point that you're supposed to be abstracting from it. There's a lesson to be learned. And, you know, by nature, it's it's very uh, you know, the story is not historically grounded and that that's what serves the purpose is so that anybody at any time, even though, okay, like none of us have, you know, uh, beans that can grow a stalk into the sky and, you know, and none of us have actually ever, you know, been up to the clouds and, and, uh, and seen, you know, a giant and, uh, and stolen anything from him. Right. But the point is, is that the, the lessons that those fables are supposed to be conveying, you know, they're approachable by everybody because in some ways this is nobody's historical reality and therefore it's kind of like everybody's historical reality, so to speak, right? It's, um, it becomes, it really becomes an abstraction, a subjective personal lesson. Whereas contrast that with, with what Luke is doing here, this is a concrete objective reality. In other words, this isn't just a lesson to be learned. And I think this is really critical, especially you know, in our modern Christian context, when even though I think a lot of people don't mean to do this, Christianity often gets what I would call fabulized oftentimes, where we want to reduce things to, a, you know, a, a mere lesson that we can teach our kids, you know, you know, be nice, take turns, do this, do that. Um, 
those don't need a historical Jesus. I mean, a lot of, you know, Barney the Dinosaur can teach you these things. <laughs> but we actually have, we actually have a, a Christ, um, you know, a Messiah, who we can point back to a particular place, a particular time, who are marked by historical characters and historical events. Um, and that objective reality is cannot be reduced to some kind of, you know, trite moralisms, but it actually becomes the, um, you might say, uh, it becomes the, it becomes the objective truth for all humanity. And so, you know, the, the sort of test that I would actually apply to this is, so you might, the appropriate response to a fable is how can I apply this to my life? How do I understand and learn this, right? Versus the response to the gospel that's rooted in historical, uh, you know, his, you know, that's rooted in history and rooted in fact is, is actually kind of a different question. And that question ultimately is, do I believe this? Now, of course, I, we all know uh, that, you know, this is something I can't say on my own, but only by the power of the Holy Spirit. But it's still the right question, though. It's not how do I apply this, but do I actually believe this? And for those who say no, I mean, that's, uh, it certainly is, it's sad, it's tragic, but, um, but it, can, it can't just be taken or left like a fable can, if that makes sense. It does. And I think, I mean, I would, I would add to that question that the gospel calls us to ask is not only do I believe this, because, and, and that, that question, there is a subjective response to the gospel. You know, is it for mm -hmm. me? But I, I think right, part, right. Of, part of what you're getting at, too, is that there's another question that with a fable is unimportant, but with the gospel is important. And that question is very simply, is it true? Or, or maybe right, did right. it happen? Because with, right. a, with a fable, it doesn't matter if it happened or if, the, mm -hmm. you know, if it's true. That, Precisely. But with the gospel, it does. Now, as, as you're saying, there is that, and, and we, I, I do think we want to talk about that, too, that there is a, a subjective reality to it, that it, it is true for me and for mm -hmm. you, but the fact is it's true. And, and that's the one of, I mean, that's a foundational question for Christians as well, because if it's not true, then mm -hmm. it doesn't matter what, what, what it said. And this is where St. Paul takes it. And he goes, of course, to the resurrection, which, I mean, when we, so we talk about the historical reality of Jesus' birth, it's tied to the historical reality of everything that Jesus did. So I right. mean, I think both of those questions, is it true? And then if it is true, is it for you? Do you believe? Both of those things go hand in right. hand. Yeah, and, and in some ways, I probably should have specified that, but I'm I I gratefully receive that that clarification because when I actually say, you know, do I believe this? I don't mean that merely as a uh, as a kind of a, a ultimately a subjective question. You know, is it for me? But but your point is your point is certainly well made and well taken. So because that's exactly what we're getting at. Hmm. Right. So, yeah. There. Well, and, and just to, I mean, to, to maybe make sure that we, we're, I know we are on the same page, but to make it clear that the, the historical reality of what happens in Luke 2 is necessary for Christianity. It, I mean, it, yeah. it actually had to happen, and it did happen. Right. But as, as we also know, and I think this is particularly true for Lutherans, the fact that it happened is not yet the fullness of the gospel, right? The for right. me, sure. the for you— and that's sure. where you know. I mean, we're going to get there, but that's where yeah, I mean, we have to have Satan the angel knows, said. Satan knows that uh, that Jesus got born, right? So that's right. Yeah, that's not that's not really super useful to him. But uh, but yeah, but you're right. I mean, I think it's you pointed out well that it, it is in many ways the um, it is the sort of companion you might say to the uh, to the resurrection. Or I mean, the way that we um, 
the way that we uh, practice this, you might say, is actually by confessing the creed. We don't just confess, you know, you know, I believe in a story that some guy was uh, was born. No, I actually believe that, you know, Christ was born of the Virgin Mary and he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, was buried, and, and was raised on the third day, right? I mean, we confess all of those things as uh, as historical realities and facts. Hmm. So, right. that and, we actually trust. And, and if it, you know, and to, to tie in what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 in regards to the resurrection, and I, I think mm-hmm. it's true when it comes to his birth as well. You know, right. if, if it didn't happen, right. then, then the conversation that you and I are having right now is one of the, the most useless things in the entire world, if, right. if these Absolutely. things didn't really happen. Yeah. But they yeah, did. We are to be pitied they did. more than all men, right? <laughs> yeah. But they did happen. <laughs> and and yeah. so and so these this conversation and, and other conversations that have that have happened around this time of year, I mean, are are the most important things that we can be considering and, and as Mary will do later, treasuring up in our hearts because they really did happen. And because they really did happen and they really are for you, then mm-hmm. then this seemingly insignificant event that happened in Bethlehem about 2,000 years ago, because of that, this is, I mean, a part of the most significant story that's ever happened. I, I don't want to say that's been told, that's ever happened. You know, that that this this is the real story that Luke wants to get. And right, yeah. More so than Caesar Augustus or Quirinius. Exactly, yeah. We'll, we'll get to that when we uh, when we get to the Declaration of uh, Peace here later on. That's right. Now, now, one thing, Pastor Johnson, before we leave these first seven verses behind, you know, you're, you're talking about, we were talking about how there's nothing particularly unusual with, on the surface, except, you know, we do get the mention of the city of David, so those who have ears to hear are going to recognize the Old Testament connections. It, in some ways, just on that surface level, not only is this very ordinary, but it's even, maybe if I say it like this, it's less than ordinary. The, the circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth are far worse than I think any most of the birth stories that I know I've gone through with my right. own children or probably you with your children and most of our listeners, you know, I haven't laid any of my kids in a manger and, and we've had, right. we've had better things than swaddling cloths to wrap our, our babies in. I mean, I think, right. you know, this is a, it's a, a, a humble birth story. So I don't know, less than ordinary, less than mundane. Right. It's, it's less than notable. Yeah, no, it, it really is. I mean, Mary and Joseph aren't exactly having a great time of it. I mean, you know, they, they get to Bethlehem and uh, and everything's all full. And uh, you know, and on top of that, we often forget that, you know, Luke does include the detail that, uh, you know, that, you know, she's pregnant. And she, though, is Joseph's betrothed, right? And we can put two and two together. This is not a, uh, <laughs> you know, this is not a, a, a child under ideal circumstances. Let's just put it that way. Right. And right. so, yeah the, yeah, the whole thing is less than picture perfect, right? That's right. And and yet, and yet there will be good news from this. So oh, there's gonna be fabulous news. <laughs> but but in those first seven verses, Luke is simply telling you what happened. Any any more details from those first seven verses, Pastor Johnson, that we should No, I want up? to make sure we've got enough time to talk about the rest of it because what what verses one through seven lack in the theology, the angels more than cover in the next part. Very good. So let's let's go ahead and read the rest of the text. We're picking up at Luke 2, verse 8 now. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. 
And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. That's the rest of our text for today. That's Luke 2, verses 8 to 20. So, Pastor Jones, we got just about two minutes here before our break. Tell us just a little bit, I mean, shepherds. So suddenly shepherds are on the scene, and you're saying right. this is where the big theology is going to come in, but shepherds really seem pretty mundane, too. Yeah, they, they are. I mean, I think sometimes we have this overly sentimentalized view of the shepherds. I mean, you know, shepherds are, you know, you know, they're, they're like the second shift workers. I mean, these guys are not particularly well, you know, they're not always very trusted. I mean, unless you actually own the sheep yourself, but if you're a hired hand, I mean, this is where Jesus says, you know, the hired hand cares nothing for the sheep, but the true shepherd, right? He's the one who cares for them. These are probably hired hands. And so they're not exactly high in the totem pole. It's, um, you know, with all apologies to garbage men out there everywhere, it's like, you know, the angels come to the garbage men, right? I mean, he doesn't, they don't come to the guys who are, you know, or who are having, um, you know, who are the uppity, uppity folks in, uh, in higher society. He comes to some of the lowliest, the, the angels come to some of the lowliest people uh, imaginable. Um, you know, and speaking of which, the, you know, just let me talk for a minute about the angels actually coming. You know, we have a, a really good track record in, you know, in the Old Testament, um, you know, angels show up always at really significant times in uh, in Israel's history, um, and the the response is almost universal. Everybody's scared, and so you know they follow suit. But what is also noteworthy is that we don't have many instances of an entire army of angels. That's what a heavenly host means. It's a it's an army of angels actually all showing up. I mean, just by the sheer number of angels who co- who come, even if they didn't say anything, we should know intrinsically that this is um, arguably one of the most important events that has ever happened in human history, uh, just by headcount. So, that's right. Yeah, and, that, that and is all, a, it's the shepherds. Well, and, and that's right. And that is an amazing detail to consider that the whole heavenly host shows up for this event. And we'll, we'll talk more about that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFU. We're looking at Luke chapter 2 this morning with Pastor Jeremiah Johnson. We'll be right back. Please stick around.
Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, January 14th. We are studying Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20 with Pastor Jeremiah Johnson. He serves at Glory of Christ Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Minnesota. Pastor Johnson, prior to the break, you were mentioning the appearance of the angel and, and the angels that we have a whole heavenly host that shows up here. And I, I, before we leave that too quickly, I, I've, I've pictured it, or I've tried to picture it in my own mind. Imagine that you were in heaven at the moment of Christmas. And, and you're watching as, you know, the Lord is there in heaven, and so are his angels. Mm-hmm. And then you're watching, and one of them leaves, and maybe you scratch your head, what's going on? And then you turn around five minutes later, or however long it takes that one angel to speak his words, and then suddenly heaven's empty. There's no—I mean, that, that's I, that's just another way that, in my own mind, that I've tried to picture this scene— to again to get i think to the point that you're making something really really important must have happened here for the whole heavenly host to show up and begin singing this this song yeah yeah and, and to think about it remember these are not you know we often have these really really cutesy uh you know images of of angels in our minds you know little cherubs that, you know with uh floating around with harps and whatnot and the descriptions in in the uh, you know, in the scriptures of the angels are, really are terrifying. I mean, you know, these, uh, they're, they're essentially, I mean, these are, these are warrior angels. I mean, this is an army. I mean, if you can imagine whatever, you know, terrifying weapons we can imagine, you know, you go back to, uh, you know, the garden of Eden and you know, what's the angel doing there? You know, it's not, uh, it's not Cupid, <laughs> you know, it's the angel guarding the door to eat with a flaming sword. And so you think they all show up and what do they do? They aren't there to conquer. They're there to sing, which has got to be one of the weirdest experiences you can ever imagine. But, but I mean, yeah, I suppose the, I would think the shepherds would be really grateful that they, you know, that they, it turns out they didn't get destroyed. But I mean, I mean, you talk about a, uh, you're kind of a real law gospel moment. Um, maybe reading a little too much into this though. You know, if, if I were to see an angel, I feel like my first question would be is, I'm gonna. Am I gonna die now? Yeah. I might die now. <laughs> um, you know, based on upon the the experiences and the description that they have in the Old Testament. And, and here, you know, you get this. You get all these. You know, angel angelic warriors showing up, and it turns out actually to be good news and not the doom of the shepherds. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. We're probably we're probably waxing a little bit. Um, <laughs> contemplative on this but they're fun things to think about so let, let's focus in more on what the fir- what the angel says in verse 9 the angel right. the one angel shows up and here's where we really start to understand okay the first seven verses what seems to be a very mundane event actually is a really big deal what does this first angel tell the shepherds yeah it's it, there's a lot of theology packed in here so let me start on unpacking it you know fear not right because that's they're all afraid behold I bring you good news of a great joy. Okay. So in other words, first thing, you know, here's why you don't need to be afraid. I'm not bringing you bad news. I'm actually bringing you good news. No, not just good news, good news of a great joy. And I think this is really critical here. That will be for all the people. And this is a constant theme in Luke. And of course it's an, it's a theme in all the new Testament, but Luke really hits on this. 
that this is not just a messiah for the few. So, sorry, Calvinists. Um, this, is, this is a messiah for all, for all the people, right? And you can't help but think of the promises that were made in Abraham, uh, you know, to Abraham, that, you know, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so in some ways, this is actually going to end up being the fulfillment of that promise, but even more so, this is a universal savior who's coming, right? And so... Um, but now let's see. So, but he hasn't even said what the good news is, right? Um, so it's, there's going to be good news for all the people. What is it? Here it is for unto you, um, is born this day in the city of David. So now we got automatically a link back to the reference to the city of David. We had verses one through seven, um, a savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, there's, there's a lot of stuff going on there. First of all, you know, um, it's in the city of David. And we don't ha specifically have him called a king. But if you're going to say it's in the city of David, um, you got to be already thinking about the, um, the promises made to the Davidic, um, you know, the Davidic dynasty, right? Always going to have a king sitting on the throne and so forth, right? But who is this? This king is also going to be a, a savior. Who is Christ? Now, of course, Christ is... Um, the other uh, Greek word for Messiah, for anointed one. And so, so you got, um, you have to be thinking about, you know, hopefully these, these shepherds knew their old Testament well enough, um, or at least knew what, what to expect that, um, you know, what does it mean for them to be a Christ? The one, you know, the Christ is naturally going to be, he's going to be a King and also a savior. Um, you know, so one who's actually going to deliver them now from what, that's going to be something Christ is going to slowly reveal throughout his ministry because there's obviously, you know, we have lots of evidence that people have, have all these different expectations for what the Messiah is going to do and how they're going to save them. You know, of course, a lot of them think that it's going to be some kind of national salvation, you know, salvation from, you know, the, you know, the oppression of Herod or the Roman, you know, their, their Roman overlords and whatnot. But, um, but here, but nevertheless, this is the promise, even if they don't understand fully what this means. And, um, and, uh, so yeah, he's born this day who is, who is Christ, the Lord. Um, and so Lord here, this is tricky. I'm, I'm not going to go through all of it, but, um, Lord of course can be the more general term for anybody who is higher in authority. And so even like the father of a household can actually be called a Lord, but Lord though often gets used in, um, you know, in the scriptures, especially in the old Testament as synonymous with. God himself. And my short of it is, I, my argument is, is that it's, it's actually in reference to God himself, that he's, uh, he's, the angels are revealing that this isn't just, you know, another, um, another human king. This king, this Messiah, this savior is God himself, right? And that's actually going to comport just fine later on when John the Baptist, you know, says prepare the way of the Lord, right? I mean, that's clearly a reference to God himself. And so, uh, so let me, let me pause there just in case you have any follow-ups on that. And then we can get to, uh, to verse 12, the sign, the really unusual sign. Not to, uh, just one more word to point out, although in English it's two. It, uh, in verse 11, unto you is born this day. It, in, it's, right. it's one word, really. It's today. And, and yeah, this is going yeah. to be a, a key word in a couple of places in Luke's gospel. And, and mm -hmm. just to point out one, at the very end, this is going to be the word that Jesus will speak to the repentant thief on the cross. 
today you'll be with me in paradise. And so wherever wherever Jesus is present, who who is Christ the Lord, as you're saying, then salvation is there today, right now. And I mean, I think this is just a an important theme elsewhere in the scriptures. When you think, you know, what right. is the day? Of, today is the day of salvation. When is the right. day to right. believe? Right now, today, because that's and that's when Jesus comes to you with his salvation is right now, today. Yeah, it's um there is this theme that we often have going on. You know, when when Christ is in view, you know, all the promises are starting to come true. Now, they may not all be completely fulfilled, but you made reference to a, uh, a line from the Psalms that Peter ends up quoting if my, in his Pentecost sermon, if, if my memory serves me correctly. You know, today is the day of salvation, right? Um, you know, so when they are, um, that is that is Pentecost sermon, right? I, I think, think so. Okay, so, so anyway, but I know Peter does quote it, and I know it gets in one of his sermons, and I think it's the Pentecost sermon. But the point that he's he's trying to bring is that um, salvation is no longer something in the distant future, but he actually has, you know, in the words of other Gospels, has come near. It's at hand. Um, and so, you know, just like um, the summary of Jesus' ministry is, you know, repent. The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand hand. It's right there. It's actually arrived. And so I think that simple word today um, or this day actually has a lot of that theology loaded right into it. Hmm. So now, Pastor Johnson, take us into the sign, verse 12. What's the sign that they've found this Savior who's been born today? Yeah, right. I mean, it's almost it's almost laughable when you really step, step back <laughs> for a second. Like, and this is going to be the sign for you. Like, I, even the, the Magi got a star in the sky. That's pretty cool, right? Um, now this is your sign. There's going to be a baby wrapped in rags, right? And he's lying in a feeding trough. I mean, what kind of sign is that anyway? But it's, you know, it would be, like I said, almost laughable. I don't mean to sound impious, um, except for we're going to, uh, you know, you, you, you have to connect it to the prophecies in Isaiah, right? Um, for everybody, everybody knows this one. Um, you know, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. This is with, you know, with Ahaz and uh, uh, Isaiah, and he gives him a, this is the sign that he gives to him, that he's going to be the deliverer. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, right? Which I think hints at when it says, who is Christ the Lord? If he's Christ the Lord, if he's Christ God himself, well, of course, then it, you know, if that's who's being born, of course he's Emmanuel. Of course he's God with us, even if he isn't a manger of all places. And then, of course, there's Isaiah 9, you know, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And I think there's a little bit of hay to be made, um, you know, with that, but let's save that until we actually get to the full song of the angels. One thing, when it comes to the matter of the sign, you know, connecting it to Isaiah, I think, is very appropriate. I, I, my mind also goes the fact that the sign is the baby who's wrapped in swaddling claws and lying in a manger, the probably the weakest looking baby in Bethlehem. Oh yeah, that's the savior. Uh, I would, I would also connect that to the way Paul writes in First Corinthians one, where he talks about. I think it's Jews seek signs, right. and Greek w- Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. So that right. if you know, if you're looking, and this Jesus, yeah, a preaches stumbling this block way. to Jews in foolishness to Gentiles. Right. Yeah, no, I, you, no, you're exactly right. Saint Paul makes it abundantly clear that. God uses the foolish things in the world to shame the wise, right? And, I mean, you have this contrast already set up right here in Luke, right? 
you already pointed out, one of the most notable people of history at that time was, was Caesar Augustus. And now you have, you know, who's the real king? It's a baby wrapped in rags in a feeding trough, right? Mm-hmm. right. <laughs> you know, and of course it looks foolish, but that's actually what we, we don't rejoice in it foolishness for foolishness sake, but we rejoice in the fact that it is God's foolishness, that this is the way, the, the foolish looking way that he is actually deciding to do the most remarkable, uh, you know, um, the most remarkable salvation project ever embarked upon. Right, right. And then, I mean, this this also, I think, connects to what Jesus talks about when the, when people are looking for a sign later, and he says, mm-hmm. the only sign you're going to get is the oh, sign right. of Jonah. Again, mm-hmm. what looks like foolishness to the world, this is God's wisdom to save, and it's it's right here in the manger, too. Right. No, ni- nicely connected. So there's the, the sign, so that that's the Savior you're looking for. And then verse 13, this is when all heaven opens up. Here comes the multitude yeah. of the, the heavenly army. And we get all the, heaven breaks loose, right? That's right. All heaven breaks loose. And we get the song of the angels in verse 14. This is and, and for those who are keeping score, this is now the third canticle that we get in Luke chapter 1 and 2. We met the Magnificat of the Song of Mary, and then the Benedictus, the Song of Zechariah. Both of those are in chapter 1. And now song number 3 is the Gloria in Excelsis, which is the Song of the Angels, and it's just one verse long. So help us into this Song of the Angels, Pastor Johnson. Once again, the angels are very efficient with their theology. There's no doubt about it. So um, so glory, glory to God in highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And so, you know, the first thing we notice, of course, is that they, you know, they, they glorify God in the highest or in the highest places you might be able to fill in. But the point is that um, certainly God deserves glory for this, but it also, I think we may skip over this too easily, Um in this simple fact that it attributes, it sort of gives God credit where credit is due, right? In other words, glory to God in the highest. In other words, it's not glory to anybody else because this is clearly God's plan and it's all his doing from start to finish. This isn't anybody else's. This isn't Caesar's. This, you know, this isn't Quirinius's. This isn't the, uh, the Jewish leadership. It's the Lord's alone. That's where it's coming from. So glory to God in the highest. Um, and now this is, this is interesting. Um, and on earth, peace among those with whom he's pleased. So peace is such a an important but loaded term and, off, frankly, often misunderstood. Um, because, you know, we often have the idea of, you know, um, of peace. It often gets reduced to, you know, my kids aren't yelling at me or there's no guns firing, right? I mean, th- that's kind of our sense of peace. Everything is tranquil, right? But peace really has a much more profound and important theological meaning, um, the most significant of which is, you know, being set right with God. That's really what true peace is. Or you might say it uh, a little bit differently. Um, the the concept, you know, in, in Hebrew is, of course, shalom, which, you know, can be used just as a greeting. But, but theologically, you know, peace means where God puts everything sort of like where it should be. You know, it's a little bit like, um, like if you ever, you know, cleaned out your garage or something like that, or even just a closet. And it's that moment where you, everything, you know, there's a place for everything and everything in its place. And you kind of have this, this sense of, ah, everything is just the way it should be. Now, if you think about that, when did we, when did the closet get empty or when did it get messed up? Um, so to speak for humanity, it got, it got messed up. Uh, in the garden itself. I mean, there has been, you know, uh, when Adam and Eve fell, of course, you know, brought down the whole, uh, 
you know, the whole place along with them. There has not been peace between us and God because things were not sort of um, the uh, our order and relationship with God with God was it was misordered. Uh, sometimes as theologians talk about it, it was it was not right. And uh, and in many ways, you can you can read the entire Bible really as a commentary on how God brings peace. I mean, in the sense that how God puts things right back where they belong, you know, the way that he ordained it, the way that he planned it. Um, and that's really what, what peace ultimately is. And this is what, you know, this is what the Christ child has come to do. He's, he's come to put everything, you know, right back in order and to reconcile us to God, to put our relationship with him, you know, uh, you know, all, all those pieces back together once again. And so it's a lot more than just the guns being silenced. Mm. So in, in the Gloria in Excelsis, these two things are combined, the glory being given to God and then the peace being bestowed here on earth. How do those two things, glory and peace, how do they go together? Yeah, that's, um, it's, I was almost going to say, well, isn't it obvious? Maybe it's not obvious. Um, <laughs> you know, that, that on, it's only, how would I put it? We give glory to God for the very peace which he brings. In other words, that he, he puts things back in place, and that is what he's glorified for. Um, and so for his, you know, his, very own, uh, for his very own work. And so I'm not sure, uh, I w- I'm not sure exactly if you were looking for more than that in, in, in that question. But, um, well, I, I wasn't necessarily looking for anything in particular. I mean, just to, to try to connect the two, I, mm-hmm. in my mind, when I think of the glory of God, my mind goes more to what you see in verse 9, the glory of the Lord shining around the oh, shepherds because right. the angels are there. Yeah. Here, glory to God in the highest is connected with the peace on earth. And and I know, mm-hmm. I think this is more of the way that Jesus speaks in John, but the, the glory of God is to save people. It's it's not just to right. like show up and be really cool looking, but, but his glory is actually to save people and to give this peace you know, with them that didn't exist. And I, I mean that at mm-hmm. least in my mind, that's one of the connections that the angels invite us to draw here. No, absolutely. And in some ways that's that very mentality is actually reflected in the divine service. Um, because what is it that we give how is it that we glorify God? You know, um, we don't just glorify God because he's all powerful and knows everything and he's got racing stripes on his car, right? It, we, we glorify God for the, for the, uh, the mercy that he shows us, right? Um, that God's strength, there's that great, um, that great uh, collect, right? God's uh, strength is showed what chiefly in showing mercy, yeah. right? Something like that. And, uh, and, and that's really what the angels are communicating here. You know, he's not here, you know, to make a big show or to, uh, you know, to do, you know, fireworks and explosions and all that so that we can ooh and ah over him. Or even for that matter, he hasn't come yet to judge the living and the dead, right? Uh, you know, the Son of Man is not, um, you know, he is, uh, well, he will indeed come to, to judge. I'm trying to remember that passage, though, that talks about that. Um, yeah but to, uh, to give his life as a ransom for many. And that's, that's what he's come to do. And so in many ways, it's, it's an unexpected turn because there are other places where, lots of other places in the Old Testament where God receives glory for triumphing over his enemies. But here, he has actually come to essentially 
be the enemy. He's come to be, I mean, in the sense of, you know, he's come to be the sacrifice. He's come to be the, uh, the one who's actually going to, uh, you know, to suffer and die and not going to be the one, you know, uh, who wins the day by, you know, trouncing everyone. You know, his victory, going back to our comments before about, uh, about the foolishness of the cross, I mean, this is actually how he's going to win the day. Um, and that's what we glorify him for, which doesn't seem very glorious to me. I mean, a guy, you know, a, a guy hanging there dying, you know, bleeding out on the cross, not super glorious. But that's exactly what we will glorify him for. And, and, um, well, and I think that if I can tie us into, because we've got about yeah. seven minutes here, so I want there's a couple more points I know you want to make. I think that can tie us into the the peace, at least the ESV translates it, peace among those with whom he is pleased. That right. that little phrase about you know who with whom he is pleased. How, what how are we to understand that? Yeah, that's that's helpful. Um, so you, if you've read a number of different translations, you know this one is kind of notoriously challenging, you know, uh, ESV is with whom he is pleased. King James is goodwill towards men. That's the one we usually all remember. I actually like theologically anyway, maybe not grammatically, but theologically, I actually like the NIV best on whom his favor rests and you know, favor um, or, uh, or being pleased or pleasedness um, is a status that you have, especially in the old Testament that comes as a result from God receiving your sacrifice. And so, you know, uh, in the uh, uh, in the Old Testament, you make your sacrifice, God accepts it, and therefore you have his his goodwill or his favor. Um, but it's it's interesting how that term takes on a little bit of a turn once we actually get to the gospel. You know, the angels declare this, but it's not. We should not get the sense that you know God is. Um, it's not the sense in which God um, is going to show mercy to those who are little you know, good little girls and boys, and he's pleased with you because you guys did really well. That's not it at all. The idea is, um, is that, you know, God has been pleased with, um, uh, with humanity or he, um, you know, he, she has shown his favor towards them, not on account of something that they've done, but simply out of his own mercy. And this really gets, um, emphasized when you get to Jesus' baptism. The, uh, the, this is the noun, by the way, that's used here that, with whom he's well pleased, but, um, or the goodwill. The verb gets used at Jesus' baptism. And when heaven opens, the Father declares, you know, this is my son with whom I love, in whom I am well pleased. He uses that same word, you know, well pleased or goodwill, um, you know, about his son, which I would argue actually marks him as the very sacrifice that, you know, who's, when he is accepted, that's how it is that God is actually pleased with us. It's not on account of our track record. It's on account of the fact that, uh, that Christ has come to be the very sacrifice that will, that will earn the ultimate, ultimate and final goodwill from God towards man. Do you see the difference there? Yeah, no, and I think that's really important that the reason God is pleased or has goodwill is because of what Christ has done, not because right. of something inherent within us. Exactly. Yeah, it's not because the shepherds were doing a good job. He's pleased with them because of the one who's actually being born in the manger. And so there's that that deep theology from the angels yet again in just this short song, The Gloria in Excelsis. Pastor Johnson, we got about four minutes here. Help us to, to and I know, I mean, there's so much we didn't talk about in this text. Right. Help us to wrap things up this morning with this very familiar text and see just how significant it is for us in our Savior Christ. 
Yeah, the the first thing that we want we can't miss out on is the fact that we sing this every you know pretty much every Sunday. I mean, at least as, as long as you're doing uh, you know full divine service, you know we still have this the the Gloria in um you know, in our liturgy, and it functions in a remarkably similar way, although it's it's noteworthy first that. You know, the Gloria, a large portion of it gets repeated when they hail Jesus coming into Palm Sunday. So these are kind of, these are twin songs, you might say, because they also say glory to God in the highest, um, you know, and they, and they welcome the son of David. And so you have these two events that are essentially um, songs of arrival. In other words, they, they only sing them because Jesus shows up. And then think about this. We sing it then early on in the service. And in, we communicate very much the same thing. We confess the same thing. Jesus has showed up. I mean, you know, if, if Jesus' angelic birth announcement announces that he's there, we are re-singing that. And it's not just, you know, it's not just a nice memory or, it, uh, you know, or sentimentality. It's because we actually confess Christ has indeed come. And he's come for exactly the same reason that he did to begin with. Um, that is to, uh, to be you know, the divine Messiah who actually save us and bring us peace, who will set us, uh, you know, at right with the Father once again. And so when we sing the glory and Chelsea's on Sunday morning, we're actually confessing all those very same things. It's really astounding. Um, but I want to pick up on peace just as the very last item. Um, you noted that uh, your Caesar was you know, he was the one who was introduced at the beginning of this chapter and he was sometimes called you know the uh the actual prince of peace is a great quote that i don't have time to uh, to give you um where they actually describe him almost in similar words to the way that we would describe christ but if you recall so luke not only begins kind of his whole narrative but at the end of acts which luke also wrote where does paul end up he also ends up at caesar once again and um, just cutting to the chase, what I would argue is that he's prompting the question, who is the real king of peace? Yes, Caesar may have, you know, tamped down his, um, you know, his, his enemies and brought peace to the entire Roman world, you know, which was remarkable at the time. And there's nothing wrong with that. But that's not the real enduring peace. That has long since failed. The true king of peace is not the one who ruled in Rome, but the true king of peace is the one who was born in a manger and who comes to us Sunday after Sunday in his own flesh and blood on the altar, uh, on his own altar. That's the true king of peace because he is the one who reconciles with God and, uh, and does not simply bring, uh, you know, wars to end, you know, here in this age. Pastor Jeremiah Johnson is pastor at Glory of Christ Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Minnesota, Helping stay with Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20. Pastor Johnson, thanks for being our guest today. You're welcome. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Luke chapter 2 or any of the gospel according to St. Luke, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.